Well, good morning. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for joining us for worship. We um, are going to be reading in just a moment from 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if you want to get a Bible, open that up. You'll be ready to read with us in just a second. Uh, before I get into all of that, I want to um, explore a little bit about what we've already done with uh, some of our singing. So Kristen Thompson, would you come and stand with me for just a minute? Jerry, which one of these is the best one? Can I take this one here? I don't know. Yes, it is. So you got to hear from Kristen earlier this morning. Uh, if you haven't met Kristen, she is married to Davey, and they lead one of our small groups, as well as lead our Sunday morning uh, discipleship uh, class for our youth and uh, part of our worship team and so on. But you were singing as we opened up the service about letting go, kind of letting God have control of your life. And um, we assume that you meant what you were singing. And so I want to explore with you for just a second uh, why you meant that. So when we think about um, I'm going to let go of my ambitions, my appetites, my aspirations, I want God and I want what God wants and I'm going to yield to his lordship. I'm going to yield to his authority. I'm going to yield to his to his things. Why in the world would somebody do that? Yeah, um, it's a fun song. And for a Christian, it's um, an amazing song. It's fun to sing. And I just feel like I'm letting go. But to someone who doesn't know God, this song is crazy. <laughs> right? Right. Um, and... It's because our world says you can do anything you set your mind to. I control my own destiny. I am always right. And according to my husband, I am always right. Okay. <laughs> but it's that's crazy. It's crazy thinking um, because I'm not always right. I'm not always right, and most of the time when I think I am right, and I set this great path for myself, this great plan for myself, it never goes right. You know, it never happens the way I think it will, and, you know, it's okay, but compared to the times where I've turned it over to God, and I've been in prayer about something, and I can just see him leading, and I'm following him, and I'm giving it up to him, it goes infinitely better than when I try to do it on my own. And not only does that problem or that issue, you know, happen well, but other problems and issues happen well, too. Because God starts not only working in that problem, but in all my other parts of my life, too. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm busted. I'm broken. I'm wrong. I, I'm never going to get it right. And Every time in my experience that I've given over to God. Hmm. So your personal experience around your own limitations and God's presence making the difference that he's made for you gives you a big why. So for somebody that would say, you know, I might have to check out more of what that young lady was talking about today. How would they do that? How does somebody live under God's lordship and leadership in that kind of way? Uh Three things. I think you have to be a Christian. Uh, I think you have to um, trust God. And I think the way to trusting God is through prayer. 
um, it's just like any intimate relationship we have with each other. You go on a first date, your questions are basic life questions, uh, getting to know you type things. And then a second date, your questions get deeper and deeper. And as you develop this relationship with someone, you're getting to know them more and more, and you're starting to trust them more and more. And I think our relationship with God is just like that. When we first meet him, we first um, become in relationship with him, we're getting our basic questions answered, getting to know him. And as we study his word, and we pray, and we um, you know, ask him for things, and we um, listen to him speak to us through prayer, uh, that trust just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And my trust is in God so much that I want him to have control of my life. Uh, he created me. He knows every single hair on my head. I don't even know that. So why would I not give everything to him to have control of? All right. Appreciate you expounding on the song from this morning. Thank you. So this idea of living life under God, under his authority, under his leadership, uh, under his wisdom, under his grace, under his provisions, as well as under his rules and statutes and standards, sometimes strikes us as a little foreign, as a little bit different than what we are normally experiencing in our culture. And that's interesting that we feel it that way because we are said to be that we're one nation under God. I mean, you pledged that to the flag for years in school, did you not? I pledge allegiance to the flag, right, of the United States of America. So perhaps you are aware of that background that that pledge was written in 1892. It was the 400th anniversary of Columbus having come uh, to what we now call North America and and, uh, the Americas. And uh, they contracted with a guy by the name of Bellamy to write this pledge that could be introduced to school children to help them have a sense of appreciation and allegiance to our country. And uh, he penned this thing specifically so that it could be said in about 15 seconds. And it was introduced to a few schools, and then that began to spread to other schools, and then that began to spread to other schools, until ultimately Congress acted on it in 1942. And in 1942, um, with a couple of revisions, uh, originally said, I pledge allegiance to my flag. Well, they modified that to say the flag of the United States of America, just to help those who had come from other countries know which flag we're pledging to, etc. That became officially enacted by an act of Congress in 42. Now, the peace under God was actually brought about in 1954. And it's an interesting story that leads up to all that that I'm not going to take the time to get into today. Um, But 1954 is not that long ago. And it's still before I was born. Just to go on record. But, yeah. Isn't it great to have Sherry back today? She's been out of town. Um, (laughs) But it wasn't that long ago that that's how many in our country thought that we are a, a United States 
of America under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Now, it didn't happen without controversy. There certainly were other opinions that were brought to the table, and, and there was some controversy. But you think about that today, and I think you'd have to agree, there's no way that would be introduced and passed today. In fact, there are a number of efforts to have it removed going on today. So this idea about our being a people collectively or a person individually who is under God is striking us more and more and more foreign all the time. You have to kind of ponder and wonder why and what are the implications of that. It raises a number of questions. Let me just uh, run through some of these. These are questions, my friend, that I would suggest to you, you have to answer. You have to have answers for these questions. Does God exist? You can't just kind of be on a default and go sometimes, well, I think he does, some other times, well, I'm not sure. Friend, you need to be in hot pursuit of the answer to that question. And if you come out on the answer that says, no, he doesn't, fine. You have legitimately engaged that process and come to a conclusion. But if you come to a conclusion that he does exist, then there are all kinds of implications that go with that. What is God like? And when you begin to try to get at that, how would you know? Unless God self-discloses, unless God reveals himself, we don't have a chance. We don't have a hope of getting to know who he is and what he is like. What does God want? See, by just referring to him as God, we're saying he is a supreme being. He is an otherworldly being. He is over and above. He's transcendent from this uh, place of creation. If that's the case, it behooves us to know what does God want? Because what God wants is really all that matters if he exists and if he is who he says he is. And if much of his self-disclosure, if much of his revelation comes through the text that we call Scripture or the Bible, how dependable, how trustworthy, how accurate is that? Friends, you've got to have answers to those questions. You don't have to have them today, but you've got to have them at some point. And if you're engaged in process already to try to get at answers for that, Good for you. Way to go. Keep on keeping on. If I can be a help to you in that, I want to be a help to you. This, this is stuff that's very passionate to me. But if you're just kind of cruising and you're going, you know, one of these days I'll get to that, friend, this is the day. You've got to get to it. Because we are surrounded with a lot of other questions. That those answers are directly dependent upon how we answer these questions. For example, what is right? What is wrong? Now, if there is no God, whatever we decide is right or wrong, or whatever we collectively began to have consensus and agreement about, is how we can get at that process. But if God is real, and if God has a way of living, and if God has expectations and standards, then how we answer these questions must come into alignment with who He is. What is abortion right or wrong? Is homosexuality right, homosexuality right or wrong? Is capital punishment right or wrong? What about capitalism? What about the whole notion of Jesus being 
the way to God and to heaven and his being exclusively the way to God and heaven. Now, friends, even a question like that last one, there is great division even within a church body about how to answer that. Just three weeks ago, the Lifeway organization did a major survey across America asking the question, or basically giving this statement, it is possible to have a relationship with God and go to heaven someday through multiple religious sincere experiences. That was the statement. And among Protestant pastors, 82% said disagree. It's not possible to have a relationship with God and to go to heaven someday through other religions. It's exclusive through Jesus. 82% of pastors said that. You want to take a guess how many people in the pew said that? 40%. And, and you may be one of those. I, I'm not trying to be critical about that. I'm just trying to say, friend, how do you know? How do you reach that kind of conclusion? You don't get that conclusion from the Bible. And so if you're getting conclusions from somewhere other than God and His self-disclosure, His revelation in the Scripture, then how trustworthy is that? Are we talking about popular and public opinion? Are we talking about scientific processes? Are we talking about just what seems intuitively right to me? That's dangerous stuff if it's wrong. And I'm just saying, you've got to engage in that process and come to points of conviction. And that's what our readings in the Scriptures this coming week are going to get into. Why we live under God. How we go about living under God. So I asked Kristen a moment ago why she gave an experiential answer. I've just already found out. I'm pretty busted and broken, and uh, I don't get it right a lot of the time, and I've come to, to trust that Jesus does get it right, and that he is worth my betting my life on. Out of the Bible and out of the readings of this week, in addition to your experience or superseding your experience, we're going to see the why is all wrapped up in his authority. Who he is, what he's done, what he calls for and claims on our lives. The how? It's true. You're aided greatly by trusting him and developing relationally with him and so on like that. The scripture is just going to say it really raw. Obey. That's how. You find out what God wants, you do what God wants. And uh, if you're interested in joining us in that journey, we really wish you would. It's been a very important journey for many of us. And so uh, you can find on our website the reading plan that we're all engaged in. It's a chronological reading plan. I think today we're starting week 14. You don't need to go back and catch up. Just start at week 14 and join us. Some fascinating readings this week as we get into 1 Samuel. So... Speaking of which, let's do that. I asked you to go ahead and find chapter 15 in your Bible. 
and we're going to do some reading. Uh, we have come through the time of the judges, and now we are at a time where Israel begins to have kings. We're going to be introduced to the first king, a guy named Saul. He uh, comes into uh, ruling as a king during the time of Samuel, who is a fascinating guy. He is a major transitional kind of figure. Samuel was a judge in the line of judges. He also was a prophet in the first of the line of the prophets that are about to come. We're going to start reading about a lot of prophets. And he's like first in line for all that. And he's also a priest. And he oversees worship and sacrificial kinds of things. He's a major transitional kind of figure. And he uh, is the one that God uses to go and tap Saul to be the first king and to anoint him as such. Saul's been king for a little while, as we pick up in the reading today. And uh, he is now being called upon to go and engage in a battle with the Amalekites. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Listen, he says. What a key skill for us to develop. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, let me just pause there and comment about a couple of things. The historical reference that 1 Samuel 15 has goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, It actually goes back further to the Exodus, but Deuteronomy 25 refers to what happened in the Exodus. You'll remember the Hebrews were set free from their slavery to the Egyptians. God did a, a bunch of miracles. They were able to go across the Red Sea as he parted it. They wander across the wilderness. And as they're getting ready to come up and, and to enter this promised land, they were opposed by a group of nomads referred to as the Amalekites. Now, all Israel said to the Amalekites was, may we pass through your territory on our way to another place. And the Amalekites said, no. And not only that, uh, shamefully uh, and disgustingly dealt with Israel. And God didn't forget that. And uh, the report in Deuteronomy 25 about that is, by the way, God has not forgotten how the Amalekites treated you when you came up out of Egypt. And someday, when you are at rest from the conquest of the promised land I'm going to give you, you are going to go and take care of business for me against the Amalekites, and I'm going to extinguish them. I'm going to wipe them off. Which gets us into a fairly difficult concept for us to consider as modern 21st century people. And that's the ancient notion, the ancient command of harem. And don't say that when you're close to somebody because you'll spray them. But that ancient concept was a concept that when there is evil in a uh, situation, in a people group, 
that the way that you deal with that evil is you wipe it all away. Every man, woman, child, every piece of livestock, and, and so on. Uh, we have a hard time dealing with that kind of thinking today. It's very ancient. It's very uh, primitive. Uh, and it was very common in that day amongst a variety of people groups. And I've already commented with some length about this two weeks ago. And I'm not going to repeat all that. So if you'd like to go back and, and hear what we did a couple of weeks ago, you can get on the website and, um, or get one of the CDs out here in the lobby. But in short, that's what God was saying now to Saul. Now's the time to settle the score with the Malachites. I'm commissioning you to go and to fight them and to utterly destroy them. Let's pick it up at verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And Saul, I mean Samuel, was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, and Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now, let me stop there. Have you been following what we're talking about? Because I know everybody doesn't have the book open. So Saul goes off, fights the battle. They defeat the Amalekites, but he doesn't destroy everything. He doesn't carry out the command of Haram. He spares the king and the best of the livestock. God tells Samuel, this is what Saul has done. And not only that, Saul has now gone down to Carmel and set up a monument to himself in his great victory. This kills Samuel. He just is heartbroken before the Lord. He cries and prays all through the night. And the next day he goes and confronts Saul about this. As he's approaching Saul, Saul greets him. Hey, oh, favored one of the Lord. We're so glad that you're here. We've accomplished our mission. And Samuel says, well, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle? How come I hear all the livestock noises if you wiped them all out? And Saul starts to give him these excuses. Verse 16, then Samuel says to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, we'll speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. 
And the Lord sent you on a mission. And he said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, and and this is worth underlining if it's not in your Bible already, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Keep your Bible open. We're going to talk about these verses. Let me mention another thing to you. So he has this command of Haram. Saul disobeys. And rather than wipe out all of Saul's kingdom, all of Israel, God says, I'm going to forgive because of the greatness of my name. I'm not going to do this for your sake. I'm going to do it for my sake. Because of who I am and the, and the need of this world to know who I am, I'm going to continue to give mercy and grace to Israel. But I'm stri- stripping the kingship away from you. Now, here is why God hates disobedience. You see a clear picture of it in this story. Keep your Bible open and look at the verses that we're talking about. In verse 24, to begin with, God hates disobedience because it is a misplacement of fear. Saul didn't fear God as much as he feared public opinion. What's everybody else saying? How does everybody else feel about this? Friend, that's as as culturally relevant today as this being April 1. This is where we live. Can I obey God? Can I stay faithful to what I think God's asking me to do in the face of so many other people thinking something else? Thinking that I'm wrong. Thinking that I should do this or that. And it is a misplacement of fear. We should fear God first. And you go, when you talk about fear, you're talking about respect. Yes, but I'm also talking about fear. Because he's a fearsome, awesome, terrible, as well as full of mercy and grace God. 
the second place, it is a misplacement of pleasure. Verse 19. He said, we only spared this best of the livestock so that we could bring a sacrifice to God. And Samuel was like, really? Then why did you swoop down on? Why did you pounce down on the spoil? The, the uh, picture that Samuel was painting at that point is like a bird of prey coming down on you know, the spoil to consume it. Oh, but we were going to sacrifice it. God didn't ask you to sacrifice it. God asked you to wipe it out. And by the way, when you create the altars and the fire and you burn up the oxen and the sheep and so on like that, who gets to eat that meat? You do. And so basically, you have esteemed the world-class barbecue over the pleasure of God's fellowship and God's being pleased with you. It's a misplacement of pleasure, and it is a misplacement of praise. He goes, Saul goes and defeats the Amalekites and immediately goes to Carmel and erects a monument to himself. Begins to make a name for himself rather than making a name for God. Listen, our mission in this world is to make much of God and make little of self. And Saul got it exactly reversed. It's a misplacement of praise. And Samuel says it's as the sin of divination. Disobedience is as the sin of divination. What is that? Divination is basically this idea where I try to discern the decision or the direction that needs to be made in some way other than God. That's what divination is all about. Arriving at a decision or arriving at direction without God's input on that. And he says disobedience is basically rejecting the command or commentary of God and esteeming another command or commentary, usually self, ahead of him. And he says he hates disobedience because it is idolatry. Not only have you rejected the counsel of God for your own foolishness, but you have just, in effect, made yourself more important than God. And anything that is made more important than God is an idol. Friends, this is a big deal. The reality of God and the alignment of our lives with God through obedience under his authority is the heart of it all. I mean, that's just where it is. And we cannot play around with that. A couple of words about what is that biblical view of obedience then. And then we're going to wrap up. If that's all that it's not, obedience is not this, this, this. What is obedience? What does obedience look like? I'll mention a couple of things. One, it looks like it's not too hard. 
God makes a big deal to point out His commands are not too hard for His people. We're told in Deuteronomy 30, 11, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Even in the New Testament, we're told near the end, book of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God. How do we show His love? Keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. How can they not be too hard? How can they not be burdensome? Because in relationship to Him, He does such a transforming thing of your heart and of your mind that it begins to be congruent with who you are. Now, outside of that relationship, it is hard as it can be. But in that relationship, because of transformation, it begins to be who you are. Secondly, biblical obedience is not only not too hard, it's for our good. Listen, we're not talking about some kind of maniacal, egotistical, authoritarian, uh, out on some kind of power trip God. God exercises his power, he exercises his lordship, he exercises his authority, not only because it's right, but because it's good for us. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, For your good. It's kind of what Kristen was alluding to earlier. Life just works when I'm doing it with God and according to God's way. And the third thing, last thing I'll say to you about a biblical view is is not only it's not too hard and not only is it for our good, but it demands faith. It takes faith to be able to be obedient to God because God will say, I want you to do this. And everything that's a part of the world around us would say, really? I mean, that just doesn't seem right. That just doesn't seem like the way it ought to be. Nothing else in life is like that. You want me to give away a tithe? You want me to sacrificially give? Pour out my life for the cause of others? You want me to suffer so that others gain? I mean, everything is like upside down in that, God. And it takes faith. Meaning, knowing God, having a relationship with God, uh, beginning to appreciate the attributes and the characteristics of God that have been revealed to me in that relationship, takes faith. To be able to live the obedient life. And as we said, this is pretty foreign to us today. And I'm not not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about us right here in this room. This is kind of foreign to us. And, And this is why, friends, because we have so... Leaned into the New Testament and grace and Jesus that we have, in effect, rejected 
the revelation of God that is the Old Testament, which is inspired, infallible word of God. And we're like, I don't, I don't even get that God. He's harsh. There's all this harem. There's all this killing. There's all this brutality stuff and all this do's and don'ts and rules and regulations and harsh stuff. Just give me Jesus. Just give me grace. And friend, we have so caricatured Jesus, he's almost not recognizable out of the New Testament. I mean, the way that we have done Jesus is he is this soft, milky, uh, loving, embracing, you know, kind of guy who wears hair product and white robes and, and goes around just always wanting to unfold and embrace people. I mean, he's so gentle, he wouldn't hurt a timid little lamb. Even creatures, birds would want to flitter around him and, and rest upon him. I mean, it's a whole, you know, fairyland kind of stuff. And we see some value for Jesus related to children. And children ought to know about Jesus and how you love one another and treat one another. But I'm not sure how relevant all that is to, you know, real life world for adults. And isn't it nice to know, though, that Jesus is always close. He's never intrusive. He's not going to impose himself on you. He's just always kind of there knocking. If you'd like to let me in, if you'd like to have a little engagement with me, I'm just kind of here if you want that. In fact, for a lot of us, Jesus is just downright cool. <laughs> hey, man, I know that whole holiness thing is tough. It's okay. You'll be all right. Just hang in there. And friend, we have characterized him. He is a cartoon. And so I take you back to Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago. He enters the city of Jerusalem. And yeah, there's a fanfare. There's the waving of palm leaves. It's the caricature of Jesus at that point because they're all going, Hey, I hear he heals people. I hear he, that he helps people. I hear that he feeds people. Hey, this is a good ticket. We ought to get on this parade. And that was Palm Sunday. But the next day, what happens? The next day, Jesus goes to the temple to worship. And when he comes into the temple, and there's all this godless merchandising, doing business, promoting self, advancing self, money changing stuff, and what have Jesus, little milk toast hair product guy, grabs a whip and cleans house. He's full of rage. And everybody's shocked. What happened to nice Jesus? And he declares, how dare you make the house of prayer a den of robbers. Get it out of here. My friends, we need a complete picture of God. And Jesus is that complete picture of God, full of mercy and grace, but full of holiness and righteousness.
And He is Lord. He died a sacrificial atoning death so that we could have forgiveness and be reconciled to God. But friend, that price has been paid. And now, as Lord rules and reigns and calls men and women to holiness and to righteousness and to His glory. And we have to decide. Are we going to be people of God? Are we going to be Jesus' people? Or are we just going to be nice people who do nice things in nice gatherings? Friends, that latter fits the category that Revelation refers to as lukewarm, and it makes God sick. So, you've been grappling with any of this? You've been getting some answers to some hard questions? Are you at a point where you're ready, having considered evidence? To believe. I'm not talking about an intellectual assent to a set of doctrinal statements. Yeah, Jesus lived, yeah, Jesus died, yeah, Jesus rose. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about believe, like I bet my life on this. I give my whole heart to this. And whatever God says, with Him being my helper, I'm going to walk under His authority and in obedience. To him. Say, God, Scott, that sounds a little heavy, a little oppressive. It's very heavy and liberating. Let's pray. Lord, we don't take lightly this moment. We don't take lightly that we've just heard and considered hard, substantive things. Oh, God, help us. Help us to engage it with a full heart, to engage it with a mind that is keen to the subject. Help us to see, to respond, to repent, to commit with obedience. Help us, we pray. And we pray that in your name, the worthiness of who you are. Amen.